Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Graham. <clears throat> For those of you who do know me, you probably have other words that you use to describe me. <laughs> Keep those to yourselves. Charming, devastatingly handsome. All right. Uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2. If you've got your Bible there, please open it up. And let's pray together to begin. Please pray with me. Gracious Lord God, we thank you for the wonderful opportunities to be able to read your word, to be able to talk about it freely, to try to understand it, and to think about how to put it into action in our lives. Lord God, please make us faithful to it, uh, with ears that are open to understand, and Lord God, please make me faithful to your word, uh, to tell the truth and to speak the things that you want us to hear. Amen. <coughs> so we're going to have a look at Mark chapter 2. Uh, just at the beginning there, the story of the Jesus healing a paralytic. Uh, let's read it together, and then we'll get stuck into it. It's talking about Jesus here. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is a a, um, passage that's very well known. um, And it's really easy to preach on because it's really easily segmented, uh, clearly segmented, and it's full of surprises. Um, the first surprise that I want to talk about and just get out of the way is, is, is the surprise for the poor guy who owns this house. So, so whoever's house Jesus is at, I presume it's not his, uh, he, he is close to home. Uh, and, 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 and what would usually happen, I think, is that, that you know, um, people would invite Jesus to stay and he might stay there for a few days. And then while he's staying there for a few days, lots of people hear that Jesus is there. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus has begun his ministry and it's all guns blazing and it's all good. This is the first time that we we hear or read about any kind of pushback from the authorities, and it's only just beginning. So Jesus is extremely popular. And so then um, what happens is, you know, presumably people hear where he is, and they just start turning up. And they start turning up more and more and more people are turning up. And this poor person whose house they're in, it's trashed anyway. And then come along these four guys with a paralytic, and they are desperate to see Jesus. And, and, you know... uh, it's, it's, it can't be a case of, you know, they just turn up and then, and then they say, oh, you know, it's a little bit crowded, let's just go and pull the house apart. 
Um, to, to get to that point, you know, they must have tried. They must have tried really hard to get in. Uh, and, and I dare say that they were, they were met with quite a lot of uh, consternation and anger and probably a fair bit of abuse for trying to get in uh, to the house to bring a paralytic, you know, who is this guy? He doesn't deserve, he's taking up too much room, get lost, there's no chance that's happening. And so what do they do? They head upstairs and then they start to pull the house apart. Uh, this isn't, you know, houses in those days weren't convertibles, it's not designed to do this. Uh, and so it's, it's extremely... Um, destructive and distracting to whatever else is happening there. But they're desperate. Uh, yesterday morning I came to the um, men's breakfast, which, which was really great, by the way. It was my first time coming to men's breakfast. Eight o'clock's a little early for my taste uh, on a Saturday morning, um, but I might have to reevaluate those priorities because it was really uh, great and encouraging. And I think I was talking to uh, maybe Andy and, and a couple other people about, um, uh, you know, as a, as a teacher... Um, for a lot of years, uh, I'm used to presenting to, to teenagers who are largely disinterested in what I have to say about anything, uh, let alone maths, uh, and, and uh, I'm used to, to them you know, um, being distracted and distracting me in all kinds of ways and just continuing on and ignoring them. And so when I preach, it's not a big deal, uh, except that I do have a trigger, and I found out uh, one day when I was preaching and somebody's mobile phone went off uh, while I was preaching because in, in my class when I teach, uh, that is the uh, ultimate sin, uh, to have your phone out and do anything with it, let alone have it making noises that are going to interrupt us all. Uh, and, and I felt instant rage when it happened. Uh, and I you know, didn't do anything about it. But, you know, um, but, but this could be added to the list of those kinds of things where um, it, it's fair to assume that if somebody gets up on the roof now and starts making a hole in it, uh, we're going to have to stop. Um, because it's going to be pretty difficult to preach. You uh, don't know what's going to fall on your head. Uh, and um, whatever, whatever Jesus was doing, whatever was happening, it's, it's, that's over now. Um, as soon as somebody starts coming through the roof, that, whatever else was happening, that's done. You know, it has to be. There's, there's just no other situation that could happen. So now we have a situation where the house is crowded, um, uh, rubble is falling down onto people's heads, and so you have to make a space for where this hole is, which means that you can get the parallel. It's a genius, you know, you know it's, a, it's a real attention-grabbing thing to do. And so then this, this, this guy gets dropped down. I don't know how they get him down without him falling off. It must be a very difficult manoeuvre, but they manage it, presumably. Um, and so then this guy, I can imagine, is now lying on the floor before Jesus. His need is so obvious to everybody that's there. And Jesus responds. And he responds with, my son, your sins are forgiven. And, and he stops. And Jesus stops. And, and, and you, you can just feel the disappointment in the room. It, you know, it's just not, it's not the right response. You got this one wrong. Um, the, the, the four men who have gone to tremendous effort to, to get their friend here before Jesus, they've done everything they possibly could and they've succeeded in getting him there. And Jesus' response is to do exactly what they don't need as far as they're concerned. The paralytic, I can't imagine the disappointment when Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven, and then he stops. But the whole point of this is for Jesus to tell them and us and everybody that there is no greater priority, there is nothing this man needs which is more immediate, which is more urgent, which is more pressing than the forgiveness of his sins. 
And I shouldn't really talk about it yet because it comes later, but, but when, when Jesus says to him, my son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is making the ultimate promise to this man. He is saying to him, my son, my son and, and, and what he's doing is that he, he, he is immediately loving him and identifying him as his brother, and he is I'm immediately saying to him, I have a place for you in the heaven that I am preparing, and I am on my way now to the cross to bear your sins. You are a man who has done it wrong, who has gotten it wrong, and who has sinned, and I am taking that upon myself, and I'm going to deal with it for you, and I'm going to bring you into my family. And Jesus says to him, I promise that I will get that done. And he does. It's a, it's, it's a tremendous thing to say. And before we move on to the, the, the surprise of the um, uh, teachers of the law and, and, and their reaction, um, there's a surprise for us in, in Jesus' immediate response. And, and that is that this man didn't repent. Here we, have, here we have a guy who's dropped down. Nobody says anything. Nobody does anything. And, and Jesus proclaims forgiveness of sins. How Jesus is able to do that is, is um, uh, best explained by verse 8. It says, um, and although it's not talking about the man, it tells us about what's going on. And immediately Jesus, perceiving his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus knows the minds and the hearts of the people who he is with and the people who he's not with. And he knows the mind and the heart of this man who is a paralytic. And what is, what is so great about this is that, that we, have, we have a God who doesn't demand that we get it right when we ask for whatever it is that we need. Even this man who couldn't get the words to his lips, Jesus still says, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is, this is Jesus who is so tender and loving. He doesn't say, let me hear it. Say it one more time. I just need to hear the words. He's not like that. He's not interested in that. Here he sees a man whom he loves and he gives him the thing that he needs the most. We see this kind of thing all the time. In, in Mark chapter 7, um, you have this really weird exchange where Jesus is, is coming uh, along the road and, and they bring him a man who is um, deaf and mute and, um, and they beg him, please heal this man. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus takes him aside and, and um, away from everybody else. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it is weird. He says, it says here, Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Now, now I would prefer not to have a wet willy from Jesus, but what, what you can't deny is that this, this interaction is extremely intimate. Here is a man who is brought to Jesus who is suffering terribly and Jesus immediately is filled with compassion and, and he, he holds his face and he groans to God and he heals him. And you know what? He didn't have to do that. Jesus is perfectly capable of just saying, yep, it's done. When, when, when Jairus comes to Jesus and says to him, Jesus, my daughter is unwell, please come and see her. Jesus has all the power in the world to say, you know what, Jairus, she's fine, go home. And she will be well. But he doesn't do that. 
And, and when Jairus' servant comes and says, don't bother Jesus anymore, your daughter is dead, Jesus doesn't just say, it's fine, she's alive now, go home. He goes to the house and he meets this little girl. He grabs hold of her hand and he says to her, Talitha, kum, which, which we translate as little girl, get up. But it's not quite right because if I, you know, if I talk to somebody and say, you know, little girl, you know, it's not familiar. That's not, that's not what Jesus... It's, it's the same as a mother or a father saying to them, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. That's what Jesus said. He reached down into death. He grabbed this little girl's hand and he said to her in a familiar way, my little daughter, it's time for you to get up now. And he pulls her out of death and back into life. And he didn't have to do it. Trust the man who does these things, who, who loves his brothers and sisters so much that he is heading to the cross and on his way to the cross, he takes all these countless deviations because he cares so much. And, he, and you know, this, this paralytic man in Mark chapter 2, he does heal him. He does heal him because he delights in it. And it's not just to prove a point. It's not just to prove a point to the, to the um, scribes and the teachers of the Lord. The healing isn't for their sake. It's not for them. It's for this guy. Because Jesus does care about him. But when Jesus sees the paralytic and he sees the need that the paralytic man has, the first need that Jesus sees, the immediate need that Jesus sees, the ultimate need that Jesus sees, is for this man to be a part of his family and to be welcomed into glory on the day of his death. And he makes sure that that is taken care of. And when that is taken care of, then he can worry about other things. But that is the ultimate priority. And then we have the scribes. After Jesus says in verse 5, My son, your sins are forgiven. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's right. 100% 100% true. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is a, this is a, um, a, a, a difficult thing in the Bible because um, uh, this, this concept of forgiveness, um, we, we understand that you, you, you can't forgive for something that you didn't know, you didn't do, you know, and, 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 and you can't, sorry, you can't forgive for something that wasn't done to you. Um, and if, you know, I don't know, if anybody decides that, you know, today's a good day to, to give, give Dan Santos a punch in the nose, I, I'm all for it, um, and, and, and I'll forgive you, you know? It's just, uh, but I can't, you know, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd for me to, to, to ever be able to offer that, you know, because, because it's, not, it's not mine to own. Um, there's a, an incredible story um, of a man during World War II. Um, his name's Simon Wiesenthal. Uh, he's pretty well known. And uh, he, he was a, a Jewish man living in Poland, uh, and then you know, Nazi occupation. He, he was taken to concentration camps, um, and, and he somehow survived. But but he had this this incredible um, uh, um, experience one day. Uh, he was in a labour camp, and he was taken to a makeshift um, hospital for Nazi soldiers. And um, the Jewish prisoners were were cleaning up around the outside. And and one day he was there. Um, I think it was the first day he was there. Uh, a nurse comes out of the hospital and she, she you know, kind of scans, scans around, finds him, makes a beeline towards him. And she, she barks at him, you know, are you a Jew? He's like, you know, he's got the uniform on, got the Star of David, it's pretty obvious. Um, yes, yes, I am. Uh, she says, right, come with me. So she takes him into the hospital, um, takes him into a room, and, and the room is um, totally dark. Everything's blacked out. All the windows are covered. Uh, she says, sit down. And so he sits down and she leaves. Uh, and, then, and then a man starts speaking to Simon 
Um, and it's an SS officer uh, who's requested to speak to a Jew, a Jewish man, and um, he recounts a, a terrible massacre that he was involved in, um, this SS officer. And then he says at the end that um, he says, I'm Catholic and I'm going to die. He said, they're, they're, they're not, they won't tell me that, but I know it's true. I'm going to die. Uh, and, and I need forgiveness before I come before God. And um, this man grabs Simon Wiesenthal's hand and Simon sits there and he sits there and he sits there and then eventually pulls his hand away and he gets up and he leaves, never having said a word. The next day he comes back to the hospital for more work uh, and he manages to slip away into the hospital. He goes to the room, the room's, everything's opened up, the bed's empty, the, the man has died. And it haunts him. It haunts him for years, and, 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 and throughout his time in the, prison, prison te- uh, in the prison camps, he keeps asking fellow prisoners, you know, about this situation, and they get very upset with him and, ve- and very angry with him for even contemplating that he could offer forgiveness. He said, that's not your right. Anyway, and then he, he ends up writing this book about it. It's called The Sunflower, um, and, and the first half of the book is recounting the experience, and the second half of the book is um, responses from people of, of him asking them, what should I have done? Um, most, most of the responses are, are, are not great, not particularly profound, um, because it's, an, it's a question that, that, that it's not really ours to answer. But, but really the answer is that, 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 that uh, when, when um, somebody is murdered, it's not up to somebody else to forgive, because the sin wasn't committed against Simon. Other sins were committed against Simon, but not that one. And... and, and in the Bible, we have a, a, another situation, this, this, this crazy world of the Old Testament, and we have David and Bathsheba, and, and David sleeps with Bathsheba, he gets her pregnant, uh, he, he, when he finds out that she's pregnant, he has her husband murdered, who's one of his um, closest mighty men, uh, Uriah the Hittite, and then after that, uh, Nathan the prophet confronts David and says, you know, you've done these terrible things, and here are the punishments, and the punishments affect everybody in the nation. And then David, after that, writes this psalm in Psalm 51 about it. And in the psalm, he says... To God, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And there's a sense in which that's, that's totally untrue because he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against his own family, he sinned against the people of Israel, he brought judgment on everybody and then he has the gall to say, against you only, God, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. But it's also true because, because the root of all sin the root of all wrongdoing, sorry, is sin. And the sin always comes first before the things that we do. And David sinned against God well before he slept with Bathsheba. And that was the problem. And that was the cause. And that was the root. And that's why he then went on to make terrible, terrible decisions that followed. And the scribes and the Pharisees, knowing all of that, say... Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, and, and will they think it? And by thinking that, they think the absolute truth that Jesus is proclaiming without any hesitation and without any ambiguity that he is the God of the universe, the only one against whom this paralytic man has sinned and all this paralytic man's sins are an offence to him and he is the one who has the right to forgive or not to forgive. And Jesus is so clear and so plain. And then he says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then we have this great question from Jesus. Which is easier, 
to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? And this isn't easy to answer. It's, um, it has multiple answers. If, if, if it's me, if I'm speaking, it's easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven. Because either way, I'm going to be deceptive and telling a lie because I don't have authority to forgive sins and I don't have authority to heal people from their physical ailments. And so if I presume to say that I can heal people from their physical ailments, you're going to know pretty quickly whether or not I'm a fraud. But if I just go around proclaiming your sins are forgiven, I can get away with that for the rest of my life because no one can ever know. There's no test. But Jesus is different and he's not a fraud. Any miracle worker can say, get up, take your mat and go home. The Bible tells us that there are people who have, I don't know, some kind of powers over some kind of things. I don't know how that works. doesn't matter. But only God who is on his way to a terrible death, can say, my son, your sins are forgiven. The thing, the thing about God is that, that um, uh, his word is his deed. When, when God says it, then it is. He says, let there be light, and there's light. He, he says to, you know, the little girl, little girl, get up. He says to Lazarus, come out, and he comes out. He says to the storm, be still. And it's still. But there's one thing that God can't do that with. Uh, according to you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think in one of his sermons, said that, that the only problem God ever faced is the problem of sin. Where this is the one thing where God won't just say, you know what, don't worry about it, let's just forget about it. He won't do that. For, for rejection of his rule, there is a price that must be paid And that price has to be paid either by us or by him. There is no other way. And so for Jesus to say, which is easier to say, rise up, take your bed and walk, or to say, your sins are forgiven? For Jesus, it's much easier to say, rise up, pick up your mat and go home. And it's infinitely harder for him to say, my son, your sins are forgiven because that is that promise that he is making that he will do that terrible thing that he had to do. But we are so grateful that he did because without it we have no hope. And, and for Jesus to heal this man's physical body and then send him to hell would be a cruel and unjust thing to do. He would just prolong his life to then experience eternal damnation. And Jesus loves this man and he won't do that to the people that he loves. And so then the man picks up his mat and he goes. So, what do we make of this? I think that um, what's, what's so great about this is that when, when Jesus meets this paralytic man for the first time, face to face, he loves him so much that the paralysis doesn't matter to Jesus when it's compared to the, to the knowledge of his eternal damnation which is pending. And Jesus wants to make sure that he deals with that 
first. The most important thing, the most immediate thing. Let's get that out of the way and then we can start to worry about healing or not. And there are lots of times that Jesus doesn't heal and didn't heal. He didn't. He, 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 he felt love and compassion for the man next to him on the cross, but he didn't bring him down and he could have done it. And he could have made everybody else forget that he was ever there. Nothing out of the ordinary. But he didn't do it. But he does say to him, he promises him, today you will be in paradise with me. Something which is so much infinitely better, even though it doesn't feel like it in the moment. Sometimes in, um, in Christianity we, de- we debate the... the um, importance of of, uh, mercy ministry and gospel ministry, uh, as though there's a tension between them. And the the fact is that there is no tension. Um, as, As we live in this world, as people who are loved by Jesus, we turn into people who love Jesus ourselves. And as we turn into people who love Jesus ourselves, we turn into people who think like him, who see like him, and who more and more act as he would have us act in this world. And when we do that and we do it carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully and faithfully, I think that the only thing that can happen is that when we look at the world around us and and, and we come into contact with people who do not know Jesus, we know, we know all the time that their greatest need, their most immediate need, their, their ultimate need is to know God because one day they're going to die. No matter how we help them, no matter what we do, one day they're going to die. We can't stop it and God's not going to stop it and then they face judgment, and then they face eternity. And surely that means that that our number one priority must be sharing the gospel with anybody who will listen at any opportunity, uh, any way that we can. It seems to me that that our church is at a little, little bit of a decision point at the moment, uh, where, where maybe things have been a little bit tumultuous, maybe things have been a bit difficult for some people, and now, now there's an opportunity to move uh, forward with things in, in a way that can be defined by, by us together. And I hope that as we, as we do that and, and, and we decide what this looks like, what this Christian fellowship, what this group of people together, meeting together, worshipping together, serving God together looks like, that we always keep in mind that our God would have us preach his word, that for whatever reason, Jesus has decided that the way that he wants people introduced to him is through those of us who already follow him. That's the way it's always been, that's the way he wants it, that's what he calls us to do. So as we think about what it means for us to meet together, to worship him and to follow him, let's think together about what we're doing to, to, to work together in community to introduce other people to Jesus as well and to see growth in our community of people who didn't know Jesus yesterday but have come to know him today and who are serving him themselves tomorrow. I want to finish quickly with a, with a quote from a woman, um, an American woman, but I won't hold that against her. Uh, she, she, in 1970s, was um, in a terrible car accident. She became a quadriplegic. Her name's Johnny Erickson Tata. She's written a lot of things and, and lots of people will know her. She says that um, she knows she can't, but she would really like it if she could take her wheelchair with her to heaven. And she, and she would like to, to, to meet Jesus face to face, and she wants to stand up on her renewed legs. 
And then she wants to say something like this to him. Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair has a, was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, she says, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> and, and this is the thing, is that, is that uh, we experience suffering in our lives. Sometimes Jesus takes that away. Sometimes, probably most of the time, he doesn't. But as his followers, we know that our ultimate end is in glory, where there is no more suffering, where there are no more problems, where we will know each other properly, where we will know our God properly, where we will enjoy eternity with him. And in this world, until that day, until we enter glory, we are called to be people who bring as many others with us as we can. And it's hard. But when Jesus meets sinners, grace is what happens. And we have the wonderful privilege and the responsibility to be called to be the people who make that meeting happen. So let's do that. Please pray with me. Gracious Lord God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we have the words and the actions of Jesus in your word. Lord God, I thank you that you have loved us so much that despite all the needs that we feel oppressing, you know our greatest need, that you've met our greatest need, that you've borne our sins on the cross, you've taken them away, and you've brought us into your family. Lord God, please make us into a people who are faithful to your great commission to go and make disciples of the nations here in our local community and in any other community we find ourselves in. Lord God, make us into people who are bold and courageous and who love the people we meet enough to tell them of the grace that you offer, even though they are sinners. Amen.